Good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson, and I'm the uh, senior pastor here at South Suburban Church. We're grateful that you're here this Memorial Day weekend. I know on um, about Thursday, I saw a cavalcade of, of trucks with campers and boats headed out of our neighborhood, and uh, so everybody was headed somewhere. One guy had a truck, a camper, and then a boat to the camper, and uh, I'd, I, I'm not scared of much, but I'd be scared of driving that. So uh, thank you for being here, especially if you're visiting with us today. Thank you for being here. We hope that you'll experience God's presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And please know that if there's anything that we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, if you're at another church, uh, please know that our prayers and our blessings go with you. Uh, We're going to be uh, finishing up today our series, After the Resurrection. Uh, The season of Easter still is going on. We have a couple more Sundays in the season of Easter, but... Our focus next Sunday is going to change a little bit. It is the Sunday that the church remembers and celebrates the ascension of Jesus Christ. So this is where, as the Bible says, uh, that Jesus, after his resurrection, uh, was with uh, his uh, disciples for about 40 days, and then he ascended at the, uh, and took his place at the right hand of God, the place that had been his from the very foundations of the world. He is seated there at the right hand of God the Father, and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead, so says Scripture. And so uh, we we will be celebrating that. The following Sunday is Pentecost, which is the celebration of the coming of the Holy Spirit, the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll be here next Sunday and the Sunday after that. And for those of you who like to have things really planned out, the Sundays after that, uh, as Pastor Joe had said earlier, we've got Vacation Bible School coming up. Uh, I think it's uh, in about four weeks or so. We're going to actually go through some of those lessons that our young people are going to be going through during vacation Bible school, because I think it's important that you know what your children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews are learning here at vacation Bible school. That way you can be as informed to have a conversation with them about the eternal lessons they're going to be learning in scripture. I I know that's important to my children, my nine-year-old uh, just finished a book that I had actually bought him. Uh, I had read a thing online about how great it was, but I didn't read it myself, which is dangerous. I don't recommend that. But when he got done reading, I said, how'd you like it? And he said, didn't you read it? And I said, no. And so he walked over to the room and handed it to me. Hopefully I can get through it in about a day or so. I'm not really sure, but uh, uh, it's important to be able to have those conversations with your young people, whether it's about books they read in school or on their own, but most especially, brothers and sisters, about the eternal lessons they learn in God's Word. And so I hope that you'll, you'll uh, be here for those Sundays as well. Uh, vacation Bible School for the rest of you, if you will. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 67. This is real easy. Just take your Bible, hold it up, open it in the middle, and you should fall right to the Psalms, unless you have the Apocrypha in your Bible. If you have that, you need to go a little bit toward the front. But for most of us, that should fall, Psalms 67. This is called, among the Hebrew people, a psalm of thanksgiving, or the thanksgiving psalm. But uh, Christians, uh, uh, we generally call this the missionary psalm, the missionary psalm. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in our message today, why this is the missionary psalm, and how does the church do its mission. So Psalm chapter 67, I'm going to be reading all of it, but it's only seven verses, so uh, it's not that long. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, 
your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is God's holy word. May God add to us his uh, blessing and his understanding as we seek to learn and apply that which his spirit will teach us today. Amen. I want to start with you with an experience that may be unique to my own. Um, <clears throat> when I initially put this slide together, I wasn't sure whether to use a Sam's card or a Costco card. And, you know, frankly, our nation is divided enough as it is. We don't need to add to that. But from my experience, it was Sam's. And I remember when Sam's first started becoming prolific. And I, I, I remember the sense and the air of superiority that people would have when they would come up to you and they'd say, I have a Sam's card. And I was really amazed and intrigued by that and all kinds of images. I had seen the box store, you know, the Sam's box store next to the uh, box Walmart store. And I had this image of, you know, walking up to the Sam's door, the gates of Sam's, if you will. And, you know, the retired guy or the retired lady at the door checking cards and me walking up with no card and that person saying, stop, you may not enter therein. And it was just a terrible feeling of abandonment and loneliness. I mean, after all, you mean to tell me I can't buy a big screen TV for $20 cheaper than it would cost over at Walmart? It's just not right. But membership cards are, are, are important in our culture. They say something. They say things about who's in and who's not in. And, and, and they say, uh, you know, um, whether it's a country club, whether it's a... Uh, um, uh, a box store co uh, club, whether it's a political party, for some reason, these cards say something to us. I mean, there's always that semblance of I'm in and no one's out. I remember the gold cards, the, back when gold cards meant something? I remember when I was 23, 24, I got a little thing in the mail, congratulations, you've qualified for a gold card. I was so excited and at the same time so upset because, well, first of all, getting a gold card invitation was pretty powerful, but if they were going to give one to me, gold cards must have not meant really much anything anymore. Being on the inside and being on the out. And isn't it interesting that if I were to say to you this phrase, membership has its privileges, that's something that you resonate with. You've heard that in our culture today. It says something about what it means to have that card, to be on the inside. Don't you find it interesting that we never say, Membership has its responsibilities. Isn't it interesting that we don't say membership may require sacrifice? Isn't it upsetting when we don't say membership in this may require everything from you? The Bible talks about a big story. That, is, that, that, that runs throughout the entirety of Scripture. Scholars call this the meta-narrative. That's the real fancy scholarly word. But the word just basically means the big story. And it's important for us to all know that there's a big story in Scripture. It begins with creation, 
It begins uh, with human rebellion. It goes on uh, through the patriarchs, through Abraham, uh, who God came to first. And what's so powerful about that story with Abraham is, is that when God comes to Abraham, Abraham has done nothing to deserve this designation that God has given to him. Abraham has not distinguished himself as anything uh, better than any other human being. He's not richer. He's not more connected. He's not more affluent. He's not more influential. It's a wonderful sign. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, 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 foreshadowing, if you will, of God's grace that God simply chose Abraham because it was God's will to choose Abraham. And God says to Abraham, some very powerful things as God is calling him to this work. He says to him, through you and your seed, through those who will follow after you, all nations will call me blessed. It's a heck of a membership card to be given. That God says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to redeem humanity. That big story continues, and it goes through uh, uh, all of the patriarchs. It goes through the kings, Saul, David, Solomon. It goes through the book of Judges, and, and it goes through the prophets, and it finally begins to take uh, uh, form with the coming of Jesus. And Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the doorway, the gate. Jesus himself says that, through which all will know of God's love through Christ. Jesus, the successor of David, the successor of, of Abraham, the ultimate realization of how God is bringing the world and humanity to know himself. And then, of course, as you know, that story is, is finalized in the book of Revelation, where we've been preaching the past couple of weeks, the, 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 the great fruition, the, the great establishment and completion of God's kingdom. Now, as the psalmist in Psalm 67 is beginning uh, to, to, to sing this song, you need to be careful of musicians. The psalmist is a musician. That's a coded way of saying you need to be careful of Pastor Drew. Because <laughs> this is what musicians do. Musicians like to sneak up on us. I mean, to get us all uh, revved up and going with our music, and then suddenly we're singing lyrics. Oh, my goodness, did I really just say that? Lord, I'll surrender all for you. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not sing that again. And the psalmist does the same thing. He gives to us this song. That's what the psalms are. They're songs. And he gives to us this song. And, and, and what's most disconcerting about this uh, song is, is that it's built in the context, if you will, of this big story that God is carrying us through in the scriptures. It, 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 there's a small point there in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and 11. By the way, I've included a bunch of scripture references in your notes that are in your bulletin today. I hope you'll take those home. Take some time and look them up and read them, understand their context, see how all of scripture comes together and coalesces around this, this big story of God's love, of God's blessing, of knowing God and, and submitting to God. And Paul says this, this tremendous phrase in 2 Corinthians, you will be enriched in every way. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could just put a period at the end of that? You will be enriched in every way. But that's not where the verse ends, does it? I read from the English Standard Version. Some of you have asked me that. 
It's intended to try to interpret the original Greek words or Hebrew words as accurately as possible. So sometimes we miss the the power of it. In the English Standard Version, it says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. The New International Version might be a little bit better, even though it's not word for word. It gives us a better understanding because it might, it's, I don't know, you'll have to check it, but it's one of those. You will be enriched in every way so that you may be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, I've known a lot of rich people in my life. However, I've never seen one in the mirror in our bedroom. But I've known a lot of rich people. And although people always say money doesn't buy you happiness, my father always said yes, but it makes misery more comfortable. (laughs) But the truth is, is that some of the wealthy people that I've met in my life have truly been unhappy, afraid that they're going to lose that which they have, constantly trying to protect their wealth and their position, their prestige. And then I've known other wealthy people who would have said to me, and I bet you've met folks like this, I'm grateful that God has blessed me because the true joy comes in when I'm able to bless others. And here's the truth. Every single one of us in this room are wealthy when we compare ourselves to folks in other nations and in other countries. Even the poorest among us is wealthy and is blessed and is called, as Paul says, to be generous. There's a Pakistani uh, missionary that I know. His name is Salim Massey. He's a, he's a Pakistani national who does mission work in his own country of Pakistan. Salim and I met about 10 years ago. <clears throat> uh, he's with the Pakistan Evangelical Christian Services, and his job is, is to lift up the gospel in Pakistan, which, as you probably know or can imagine, it's not a nation that really celebrates the preaching of the gospel. The people with whom Salim ministers are people who lay their life down every day to be followers of Jesus Christ. I don't mean to be hateful when I say this, but you know, it's way two different stories when I speak to parents who say, I can't get my child to church for worship or for vacation Bible school because of soccer practice. When the folks with whom Salim worships say, I'm going with my kids to church where today we may lose our lives. That's two different worldviews, isn't it? It makes my struggle not seem such a big deal anymore. Salim, when he first started his ministry, and as we started working together, we were connected with the World Convention of Christian Churches, which is our international fellowship for all the Christian churches throughout the world. Man, he was filled with such passion. I mean, he was, he was so excited to be able to network with churches in the United States because he believed in the big story, and he believed in, <clears throat> in what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He believed what the psalmist said, that through God's grace and blessings upon us, we then could be a grace and blessing to others. And over the decade that I've known Salim, Salim is not near as excited about working with American Christians anymore. And I remember uh, not too long ago, as I've seen some frustration and some cynicism come into his heart, I remember I said, Salim, I don't understand what's going on with you. And he, he said very seriously, he said, I believe that God is going to judge and punish the United States of America. And more specifically, Ike, I think God is going to punish the church in the United States of America. 
You are not a generous people, he said. I have to heap praise upon you and grovel so that you'll share the bounty of your, of your blessings with people who struggle each day. He ended it, and, and it sounds like a joke, but he said it seriously, and it, it, it ticked me off. It infuriated me when he said this. He said, my job is to get as much money out of you as possible before God brings you guys to an end. Months I was ticked off. Oh, yeah? Well, let's see how generous I'll be now. But as the Spirit does, the Spirit softened my heart and began to lead me and encourage me to look at myself and look at my church and look at the whole church, especially in the United States and the West, and think to myself, are we doing what the psalmist is doing? Are we inviting God's blessings so that we can be a blessing? The psalmist goes on and he says, you know what? When we praise God, we will know God. Most folks in times of darkness and uncertainty will say, they say, you know what? I want to know God. Even myself, in, in my own prayer life, I, I want to know God. I, I, like you, have sat on the edge of my bed and I said, Lord, here's the decisions I have to make if you would reveal to me your will, some supernatural way, can, can, somebody, can somebody speak with a different voice? Can I hear your voice uh, echo from the pavilions of heaven? Can I see a burning bush? Will you tell me what it is you want me to do? I want to know your will. But I have to ask myself, why do I want to know your will? And I, I can't help but wonder if, if God says to me and perhaps even says to you, I don't know what more you want from me, Ike. The psalmist echoes words from the prophet Isaiah who says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. And Jesus picks up on these themes and he says, you keep saying that you want to see the Father. If you knew me, you would know the Father. You see, that's the uniqueness of the Christian claim is that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but Jesus is also God the Son. And Jesus says some words, according to the physician Luke, that are quite frightening when he says, the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. If you want to know God the Father, all you need to do is to look at God the Son. If you want to know the heart of the Father, all you need to do is to look at the heart of the Son. And Scripture, specifically the New Testament, even more specifically the Gospels, show us time and time again the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Father. You know, folks come to me all the time, and I'm sure they've come to you, and they've said, you know, one of the things that I love to do is to come to worship because when I come to worship, and then they fill in the blank. What's your fill in the blank? I think for a lot of us, I'm not trying to be mean or hateful, we come to worship because we want an experience. We want a shot in the arm. And that's to be 
to be perfectly honest with you, I understand, I know that there are people who've been through tough times. There are people who are struggling through brokenness. There are people who are struggling with separation. And worship for them is indeed a time to be healed, a time to be reunited with the eternal message of God's love through Christ. But unfortunately, so many folks come into a place like this and they have a backward understanding. How many folks do you know that, that view you guys as the audience? They, they look at me and Pastor Drew and the worship team and Pastor Joe as the actors and they view the Holy Spirit as the directors. And they have the whole play backwards. When what's really true is, is, is that Drew, myself, Pastor Joe, the worship team, we're the directors, you're the actors, and God is the audience. God is the one who is enjoying the sacrifice of praise. God is the one who is blessed by your presence and your heart being open. It's one thing to come to Christ and say to Christ, I accept you as my Lord and Savior, and we skip over the Lord word, don't we, and go right to the Savior word. I want the Lord to give me what I need. I want the Lord to strengthen me with what I need. But this whole thing, I want to save me. I want the Lord to give me what I need. But I don't accept God's direction in my life. One of the things that our worship seeks to do as we lead that in this place as we lead you in praise, as we join you in praise, is that we accept direction from God. Whatever God wants of me, it's hard words to say, I will do. I think sometimes the struggle, because the psalmist says, God is our judge. God, the psalmist asks for God's grace and God's blessings so that God's position as judge over his people might be known. And, and I think some of the problems is, is that in our culture today, especially in English, we understand judge in a very particular way. Uh, how many of us haven't dealt with people who've criticized us and have said, why are you all so judgy? And that idea claims that you know, we're telling you what you've done wrong. And you need to hear this. That's not how the Bible talks about the word judge. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks about the word judge, when the Old Testament talks about the word judge, it literally means that a judge is someone who has a direct rule over our life to rescue us from danger. That's what the word judge literally means. We have a whole book in the Old Testament with that name, the book of Judges. You go back, if you, if you need something else to read uh, this week, you go back and you read the book of Judges. It is the most frustrating book in the Old Testament. Time and time, well, some of the prophets are too, but they're a little harder to understand. Time and time in, in the book of Judges, God is saying, okay, here's what, I, here's what you need to do to experience success. Here's what you need to do to experience peace. And time after time, the Hebrew people refuse to do it. And so what does God do? God raises up a judge. And this judge isn't somebody who comes and says, naughty, 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 you shouldn't have been doing that. No, this judge, in the midst of the people's disobedience, calls them together, rallies them together, so that they might meet and overcome the threat that is before them. This judge is a rescuer in the book of Judges. 
He's someone who rallies the troops, reminds them of God's strength and perseverance, reminds them that no matter what is coming against you, with God, you will not be overcome. These judge, judges lead the nation into battle against armies that seek to obliterate them and not only are victorious, but reestablish their integrity as the people of God. I think one of the most specific passages in the New Testament that talk about judging is found in Matthew chapter 25. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there to Matthew chapter 25. I want to read this to you. If, you have, uh, if, you, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see there's a little heading over this passage that says, The Final Judgment. Let's see if we can't read and see and understand more fully about what it means to welcome God into our life as our judge. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels... This is verse 31 of chapter 25 of Matthew. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did you, we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Are you ready? If you don't mind underlining your Bibles, underline this. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it to me. If you keep reading on, the same thing happens, but in reverse, God separates those who did not feed the thirsty, or feed the hungry, or give drink to the thirsty, or visit the sick or the imprisoned. And he says, when you did it not to the least of these, you did it not to me. Now let me ask you a question. Who's he judging here? Now take a, take, take, let the Old Testament interpret the New Testament, okay? How many of us haven't read this and say, oh, wait a minute, i, I got to do this or God's going to be mad at me. And that, that, that may be something you need to think about. I don't know. But in terms of who is God judging, is not God judging the one who is sick, the one who is hungry, the one who is in prison? Not in the sense that they're condemned, because that's not how the Bible understands the word judge, but in the sense of the one being rescued. Who's being rescued here? Who is, the, who is the focus of God's work of redemption? It's a totally different way of understanding judgment, isn't it? And it's one that I think will help you and help the church understand not only how God thinks about the least of these in our world, but in our role and our participation that God invites us into as he redeems the world. The psalmist continues on. And he says that through the praise of the people, through the praise of God's blessings, God will lead us. 
Most everyone has heard of that 23rd Psalm. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. The psalmist begins this great passage in verse 1 with a word of blessing that at the end of our service you're going to hear today. It's called the priestly blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face to shine upon us. For the reader of the psalm, it would remind them of the priests of the old covenant under Moses blessing the people. For the reader of this psalm, for the hearer of this this song that's being led in worship, we would have heard the very words of God when he spoke to Abraham and said that through you, all the world will call me blessed. Through you, the world will know of my love. One of the greatest passages for the church is found in Matthew chapter 28. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to that. Matthew chapter 28. This ought to be highlighted, underlined, draw a little bracket around it, put two or three stars next to it, a bunch of arrows pointing to it. We call this the Great Commission. And you know, the interesting thing is, is that as a pastor, as I read and as I uh, uh, seek to educate myself, as our st- staff seeks to educate themselves, we hear all this conversation about how the church needs a mission. We need a mission statement. May I suggest to you today that it's not so much that the church needs a mission to glorify God, but it's that God's mission needs a church. And here's the mission that Jesus gives to his disciples and therefore to us. Beginning in verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If we need a mission statement today, not as part of South Suburban Christian Church, but just simply as a part of the church of Jesus Christ, this is the mission that God has given to us. This is the mission that God needs a church for, that we preach Christ to all. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach Christ to all. And a powerful thing that Jesus says, once you've brought them into relationship with me, once you have preached the gospel to me, now I need you to teach them. Teach them what? Teach them all to observe all that I have commanded you. And then finally, to be Christ to all. For behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know that as one who has Christ within you, you are Christ in people's lives? 
You are the one to whom God has appointed and called to share the message with the nations. God has blessed us generously. God has let his face to shine upon us so that we can be a blessing to others. There's a story I want to share with you. It's a story about a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks often occur. On that coast, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building wasn't much more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But there were a few devoted members who kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves, went out day and night tirelessly searching for those who were lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas, they were so impressed by the mission of this life-saving station that they too wanted to become associated with it, to give their time, to give their money, to give their effort to support its work, to save those who were drowning. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. And that life-saving station began to grow. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy about the building. It was too crude. It was poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and They put better furniture in it and enlarged the building. More and more, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they decorated it beautifully because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea for those life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif was so important to them that they even began to erect monuments and decorate their club, placing prominent symbols of their mission and their work in the place where they initiated new members. They were quite proud of themselves. About this time, a large ship wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold and wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty, they were sick, and they smelled. The beautiful new club was in chaos, so the property committee called a meeting, and they decided to build a shower house outside of the club where victims of the shipwrecks could be cleaned up before they came in to their nice club. At the next meeting, there was a split, a division, an argument among the club membership, Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Perhaps those people should have been more attentive before they sailed into the storm, paid attention better to the rocks. They wouldn't be in this situation if they had done that. Some of the members insisted that life-saving was the primary purpose, and they pointed out that they were still called to be a life-saving station. So they voted, and they decided to split. And the group that still wanted to do the work went down the beach, and they built another life-saving station. But as time went by, they too 
began to experience the same kind of changes that had happened in the very first life-saving station. To this day, you can go to that beach. And along that beach are dozens of the most beautiful, spectacular life-saving stations. But unfortunately, there are still shipwrecks off the coast on the rocks. But unfortunately, today, those people drown. 